Everybody have an okay week this week? All right, we're turning back to Joshua 1. We're going to pick up in verse 6 today. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we come to your word with expectancy this morning. Or as a family, a congregation of saints, we come ready to feast on all that you've said. Let your word challenge us, inspire us, encourage us shape us, convict us. Lord, we just confess freely that this word is such a blessing to our lives. And we just say as a family, we love it. We love your word, Abba. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen. That's my baby boy back there crying for mama. Mama. In Martin Luther's table talk, which is the kind of collection of conversations that he had at his table, as you can imagine, um, or in other places too, it's just kind of a collection. Uh, there's a there's a part where he tells a story about a young Hungarian preacher. I was um I was walking through Old Town yesterday, just trying to get some exercise, you know, listening to Martin Luther in my headphones and just cackling because he's such a smart aleck. Like, I just love it. He's just a smart aleck in all the right ways. So if you see me bent over walking around town, it's because I'm listening to Luther, okay? Which doesn't everybody do that? Isn't that really normal? Um, well, anyway, he says that he, um, he invites this Hungarian preacher, his name was uh, Matthias Devai, to his table and Matthias told him this story, and I thought I'd pass it along to you this morning. Matthias said that he had just settled down in a town in, in Hungary, and he was kind of, he met the local Catholic priest, and Matthias was a, was a Protestant preacher and teacher, and he and the priest just could not get along. They're just button heads, they're arguing, they're debating, there's tension, and it goes on and on, and Matthias says it's just, they, they just cannot see eye to eye. They're arguing primarily about the authority of the Bible. Um, so the traditional Protestant view, which we hold, is that the Scripture is God-inspired. It is written to the common man that we should read it. It's understandable. We should obey it above all else. No matter what anyone else says, if it comes in contradiction with the Scripture, we choose the Scripture. That was Matthias's position. And the traditional Roman Catholic position is that uh, it's, they will say the Scripture and tradition, or the Scripture and the authority of church tradition. And they'll say that you can't rightly understand the Word without understanding how it's been taught throughout the years. Now, that's quite a problem for us because sometimes tradition is in contradiction with the word. And so that's essentially what Matthias and this priest are having debate about. Matthias is saying, no, the word of God alone is authoritative. And so the priest being frustrated with Matthias, uh, he goes and gets a local friar. And the friar is now going to kind of mediate between Matthias and the priest. And so they essentially have the argument all over again in front of the friar. For hours, they're just arguing, 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 arguing. The friar's going frustrated. He's tired and weary. And in kind of frustration, the friar finally says, look, this is what we're going to do. He says, I'm going to get two barrels of gunpowder. We're going to place them in the middle. They do this. This is, this is history. This is a true story. They place them in the middle. And then he says, you both sit your butt on top of the barrel of gunpowder I'll light the bottom of it. And whoever's right, God will protect them from the flame. And so Matthias tells Luther, he says, I've plopped myself right on top of that barrel ready to go. 
and then, and the priest hung his head and walked away. And it was that day in their town that they actually had a, a great turning to um, trusting the Bible alone as authority because everyone saw that Matthias believed what he said and the priest was not ready to put his butt on the fire to, for his conviction. Luther went on to draw the point in table talk. He's drawing the point that um, he quotes John fourteen twenty three, where Jesus says this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Luther, in Luther's language, he said, the, the scripture says that the earth is the Lord's footstool and the heavens his throne, but not even the earth or the heavens are capable of containing all who, for being a dwelling place for God. Um, God does not say, I dwell on the footstool or I even dwell in the throne. He said, God said, I will dwell amongst those who obey my word. That those who obey the word, according to John 14, 23, that Christ says, we will, meaning he and the Father, will come and dwell among them. Luther draws the point that if you want to find the presence of God, find a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-living church. That God dwells amongst those who love his word and obey his word and celebrate Christ. Now, as we turn to Joshua 1 again, we'll see Yahweh here instructing Joshua on multiple occasions to be sure to do all that's in the book of the law. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Be sure to do all that Moses has commanded you. God tells Joshua, you are to have a dogged pursuit of obedience. Set your face like flint to hear this word, do this word, communicate this word. Let's read from Joshua. Joshua 1, verse 6 through 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, let's briefly consider the context again um, just to remind ourselves of kind of where we are. This is the second part of Joshua's commissioning. Remember again that, that um, the Pentateuch, ooh, lost that word, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy are Moses' writings. We said last week that starting in Exodus, the narrative really revolves around Moses' leadership and his life, and that Moses passes away at the conclusion of Deuteronomy. And the start of Joshua 1, we find God commissioning Joshua to now take on the mantle of leadership that Moses has left behind. Remember, Moses climbed Mount Nebo. He wasn't allowed to enter the promised land, but he was allowed to see the promised land. Now Moses has passed away, and God says to Joshua, you are now to take on the mantle of leadership, and you will lead Israel into the promise that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
So here we find the second part of Joshua's commissioning from God himself, where he's met with great responsibility. Some have suggested that when God repetitively says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, it's because Joshua recognizes the great responsibility of leadership and feels a measure of fear concerning the task at hand. That would suggest humility. At times in humility, you see a great task and you say, this is some heavy responsibility and there, there may be a measure of caution. When Solomon had the opportunity, the the mandate to lead Israel. And God comes to Solomon and says, ask me for whatever you wish. And Solomon asks for wisdom that he may lead the people. I used to hate, it drives me nuts when people teach that the great request of Solomon was for wisdom and that we should all be after wisdom. That should be the highest request. It wasn't just for wisdom. It was for wisdom to lead the people of God. He recognized the responsibility that he had as the shepherd of Israel in this moment. And he says, God, give me wisdom to lead this people in righteousness. It may be that we find a measure of that in Joshua's heart here. God, I need the wisdom and the discernment. I feel the responsibility. And God may be saying, be strong because you'll have to step into this role of leadership. Either way, that's where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves in the second part of the commission. Moses has passed away. Israel is encamped around the opposite side of the Jordan, but they're getting close to the promised land to cross over. And God's saying to Joshua, it's now your time to lead these people into the promise. Be strong, be courageous. There are two refrains that we'll look at today. The first refrain, the repetition, is be strong, be courageous. The second refrain is do all that's in the book of the law. So first, let's look at that first echo. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong. That reputation is worth thinking about, chewing on. Joshua is obviously a man of natural strength. He's one of the greatest military leaders throughout Scripture, if not the greatest military leader. He's a strong, physically strong man. There's no doubt about that. And intellectually sharp, because he's... he's bringing strategy to play that's wise. And so he is intellectually sharp. He is physically strong. So when God says, be strong, he's not saying, think harder, study more. He's not saying, do more push-ups. God is speaking to the place of Joshua's soul. In the place where we struggle with despair. In the place where we struggle with anxiety. In the place where darkness attempts to intimidate and cripple us. God is saying, in the place of your soul, Joshua, be strong, be very strong, be courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong. You probably heard it said before, how many times does the scripture give that command? Do not fear. It is a scriptural command to not be people of fear. We have a command of scripture to be people of courage. Joshua needed to be a person of courage. There's an obligation, an authoritative command on Joshua's life. Be a man of courage. One, Joshua will have to be a man of courage because in every place he finds himself in, there will be pressure and temptation to cave or to compromise with idolatry. 
In other words, Joshua will over and over again be placed in scenarios where the surrounding culture says, where is your God? Think of Moses and Pharaoh, right? Like there, there are even false gods in, in idolatry worship where there are signs and wonders, right? Moses is matching, uh, Pharaoh's matching Moses' signs and wonders there for a season. Ultimately, he's totally overshadowed by the God of Scripture. But there is even spiritual power shown in the Old Testament as people worship false gods. So there are going to be moments in Joshua's leadership where it feels like they're struggling, where it feels like trial, where it feels like despair. And many will say, where is your God now? And others will say, why don't we go pursue this other God, worship this other idol, because they have power and strength. And Joshua will have to be courageous and dogged. The, again, the, the language here when it says very courageous, it means doggedly courageous He needs to be dogmatically, courageously committed to the God of Scripture. Because there will be the temptation when trial comes to go after other gods. Secondly, the temptation to go after other gods will not only be to go after other gods for the sake of success, it will also include to go after other gods for the sake of fulfilling your own lust. Because idol worship is going to oftentimes involve forms of prostitution and sexual immorality. It's going to involve feast and, and celebrations that God has commanded Israel not to participate in. And Joshua is going to have to lead the people of Israel while the people of Israel at times, we know this historically, are going to grumble, moan, and groan, and sometimes pursue the gods of culture. And Joshua needs to be dogged doggedly obedient to the God of Scripture. Every generation will have the same dilemma. We too will have a cultural pressure, a societal momentum and swing, temptation to abandon the God of Scripture or to compromise our views concerning the God of Scripture, to meet in the middle with culture, and we will have to be courageous to honor the word of God. You will be told that it is hateful to declare the gospel of Christ Jesus. You will be told that it is hateful to live out biblical sexuality. You will be told that it is hateful to train your young men to be courageous. There's a great temptation to demasculate. That's not the right word. And the right word is gone. There's a great temptation to throw away masculinity in our, in our generations. And um, we need to train our young men to be respectful. We need to train our young men to be men of honor. That's some, I grew up in the South, okay? So I have an appreciation for some elements of Southern culture. But doing things like holding the door for a female is not a sign of... of claiming to be chauvinistic. It's a sign of honoring women. We need to train our young men to be honoring to women. At the same time, we need to train our young men to think logically and to be willing to debate according to their conscience. Because culture will do everything culture can to intimidate me and my children out of boldly proclaiming what they believe. It takes courage to talk back. We want to be people of honor, respect, wisdom, 
We are not people who are looking in any way to devalue anyone or belittle anyone because we believe, scripturally speaking, that every man, woman, boy, or girl is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And so it's against our core beliefs to just to be people who belittle folks. But at the same time, I will not tremble just because culture disagrees with me. We've got to teach our young men and our young women to be people of courage. What church history has always taught, uh, apologists have always taught, Christian philosophers, is that to think logically is to think the thoughts of God after God. And so, what I'm trying to say to you is that we need to, we need to think biblically and then have the courage to say, what you're saying to me, one, is not biblical and two, is incoherent, incoherent logically. But some reason for us to say that to our culture is now hateful and we will be belittled and bashed and ran out of town for standing up. The command of God concerning us is be strong and courageous. The same principles apply to our young women. I, I, if you guys will let me ramble, I have a house full of girls. I have three daughters and a baby boy. Um, and so I, I want my daughters to have the liberty to live according to conscience before God. So if God calls my daughter to the mission field, if God calls my daughter to the workforce to be a teacher, and she's, she can say to me, I feel like God is calling me to excel in, in become a professor at the collegiate level. I feel like God is calling me to excel in the marketplace for the sake of his gospel. I want to say to my daughter, yes and amen. You must stand before God in good conscience that you have obeyed him. On the same hand, it takes courage for my wife to stand and say, I am before God. I feel responsible to be a stay at home mom and disciple my kids and cook meals with my kids and teach them the ways of the Lord. Society will say to my wife that she is submitting to a patriarchal culture and that she is less than because of her values. And I'm saying she needs to have the courage and the liberty to say before God, this is what I'm called to and I will do it. I don't care what you say. You can shout, scream, jump on one leg. I'm going to be obedient to God. And in, in, in every way, this is what God is saying to Joshua. You are about to step into a land that is surrounded with a pantheon of gods. There's going to be cultural pressure, peer pressure. There are going to be many who go and sway and walk away from me. But what we find at the conclusion of Joshua's life, again, remember we said that Joshua was such a faithful and consistent man. Not a man of big highs and low lows, just a steady, plotting along man. There's great value in that. What we find at the end of Joshua's life, the end of his leadership is where he says to Israel, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So what we, at the beginning of his leadership, God says, be strong and courageous for you are going to have to face pressure to bow to culture, to other gods. You need to be doggedly courageous to live according to what I've said to you. At the end of his ministry, as he prepares to go to the dirt, he says, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. What a beautiful testimony. One, we will have to be courageous, strong, and bold because we will have pressure to compromise. We need to be courageous to think, to articulate. We need to be wise and humble and honoring, but we've got to get a stinking backbone. Okay? It is going to be required of us in the days to come.
Second, be strong and courageous is very clearly pointed at the idea that Joshua will have to have the strength and the courage, the faith to believe that God will accomplish what he said he will accomplish. Think of Caleb and who? Joshua being chosen by Moses as to represent their tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, to spy out the land. And do you remember when they went to spy out the land? Joshua and Caleb say, let's take it. God's been faithful. Let's do it. We, it's, it's a beautiful land. It's prosperous. Let's do it. Let's take it. And everyone else says what? There's giants. I ain't doing that. And all of Israel succumbed to the fear of the other 10 spies. And God is saying to Joshua again, fear is a disease. You will have to be strong and courageous. Dog it in your faith to take what I'm telling you you'll take. Consider this, that Israel witnessed the miracles of Moses as he faced off with Pharaoh. That Israel stood before the Red Sea with Egypt on her tail. And when Moses lifted up his staff, the entire sea parted. They walked through on dry land. And then God destroyed the armies with the sea. Consider this. That Israel has now for, for decades seen the fire of God lead them at night, the cloud of the Lord descend upon Israel. Consider this, that Israel watched Moses come down from the mountain and his face shone with great glory. Consider this, that Israel now for 40 years, their shoes have not worn out. Living in the wilderness, they have not for a day gone hungry. Fear is not logical in this moment. It's not that those who submit to fear are going, we're people of logic and rationality. Okay? There's giants. We can't do that. No, we just watched God drown an entire army when he told us to walk. Faith and logic in this scenario are not pitted against each other. They're actually in line. We sang this morning, great is your faithfulness. Your steadfast love endures forever. You've never forsaken us. It is perfectly logical to continue to be courageous people of faith and to pursue God in the face of all odds because he has been faithful to us time in and time out. It is illogical to be people of fear and to tremble. Joshua will need in the days to come as he leads Israel to take the land that has been promised. He'll have to conquer the giants. He'll have to see walls fall. He's going to need courage that flows from a sound theology of God's faithfulness. I will not leave you or forsake you. That every promise of God and Christ is yes and amen. We've said this to you before and I just lobby it again. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that when a church is discouraged, when a church is struggling with fear and anxiety, when a church begins to have her knees shake, she does not need someone to come along and pat her on the back and encourage her. She needs to return to her doctrine. Because in our doctrine, we see that God is with us, that God is faithful, that the promises of God will not, will not fall flat. 
Next, let's consider the second refrain. The second refrain being, obey all that Moses has said to you. Don't let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Be obedient. Don't turn to the right or to the left. The second refrain has to do with the book of the law. I'd like to make some introductory comments here, and here I'm appealing to Francis Schaeffer's work. Um, but Schaeffer made this point really strongly, and it's, and, it's, and it's an important point. The book of the law, written by Moses, is already to be received as the inerrant word of God. Joshua knew Moses. He knew Moses' weaknesses. He knew Moses' flaws. But Joshua possessed a book, clearly from the text. Joshua possessed a book, the Pentateuch, the book of the law, that Moses wrote. And Joshua was to receive this text as revelation from God and God alone. And Joshua was to obey this revelation. Now, I opened with a story concerning Matthias and the priests debating about the authority of God's word because I want you to see that already in Joshua 1, we are seeing the scriptural presentation that the Bible is to be obeyed held with highest reverence and regard. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But when God says to Joshua, you are to follow this book of the law, there is a, an obvious inference from that claim. The obvious inference being, one, that Joshua has the book of the law. Two, that Joshua can understand the book of the law. The Protestant view, our view of Scripture is that the Bible was written for common men and women. You do not need a seminary degree to understand what God has written. You don't need to appeal to the scholastics. You don't need to appeal to the priest to study the Word. The Protestant position, and beginning to be drawn already from Joshua 1, is that God gave us revelation that we can understand because He expects us to live by it. that must become dogmatic doctrine in our hearts. In the days to come, we cannot bow on that conviction. The Bible, the revelation of God, is one, understandable, is two, from God, three, we have access to it, four, it must be obeyed. Not the latest prophetic revelation, not the latest teaching, not the trendiest movement. What does the Bible say? Everything else is shifting sand. God has revealed himself to Moses, given Moses the book of the law. Joshua clearly has a copy of the book of the law. He, clearly, he can read it and understand it. And he is supposed to hold it up as revelation from Yahweh. Church, God has spoken to the entire council of his word. It is to be received with ultimate authority. We need to study it. We have the great privilege, blessing, and honor of having God's own breath here. What Paul calls theonostos, that God breathes scripture. It's a great privilege, privilege and a blessing to us. We also have a great responsibility to hold it up in its proper place of authority. You have a great responsibility to diligently read and study it. You have a great responsibility to diligently teach it to your children and your grandchildren. From Joshua 1, we are told this is revelation from the mouth of God. So Joshua is given three instructions. 
I'll run them through with you really quickly and then we'll get ready to wrap up. One, the book of the law, the word. Again, imagine Joshua possessing the book. The book of the law should remain on your lips. God says, let the law, let my word remain on your lips, Joshua. Meaning, Joshua is to speak to Israel the word of the law. He's to teach it. He's to refer to it. He's to allow it to be central in dialogue and decision-making. When they're discerning, how do we lead? When there's hard decisions to be made, they are to return to the law. Put it on their lips and reason from it. It should be read aloud. It is to be honored. It is to be in the forefront. Now, let me get on my pedestal for a minute. I want to say, and again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not intending to be critical, but I do think I say this with a measure of um, a prophetic bent. Not that I'm prophesying, but the prophetic in the sense, John the Baptist prophetic. There's a, there's a conviction to this. Modern Western preaching lacks a serious conviction concerning the revelation of God's word. We may, have, we may have in our doctrinal statements the claim that we believe God's word to be inspired and infallible. But in praxis, in practice, we do not act out that doctrine because we do not read, study, and preach the word. What's become very common in our culture, and y'all, I'm not talking about any church around here. I'm talking oversweeping, overarching themes. What's become very common in our culture is what's called topical preaching. Nothing wrong with topical preaching as long as it's exegetical, meaning that it's all the principles are derived from the scriptures. Topical preaching is when you say, if I were to come to you and say, hey, our next sermon series is going to be on fear. And for seven weeks, we're going to talk about fear. And I'm going to each week have a different aspect of fear, how it relates to your emotions or how it relates to your workplace or your courage. And then I'm going to use a few verses to try to support my ideas of how you need to overcome fear. And oftentimes what happens is we're not actually using the verses in their proper context to communicate what the verses were intended to communicate. And we are, without a shadow of a doubt, treating God's holy revelation flippantly. That's not to say that Every preacher needs to preach an expository style, which I have conviction that we as a church are going to continue to be a church that studies God's by a word and an expository style. We're going to walk through the text because what you don't need is what I have to say. You need what God has to say. And, and I'm just, again, I'm not throwing stones. I'm just communicating where that came from in our culture. It came from the church growth movement. What happened was, um, shoot, I don't have a date. Sometime in the 70s, 80s, um, what happened was some men came together and they began to poll communities. And they would poll people who were unchurched. And they would say to the unchurched, what, what, what could we teach or preach that would make you want to come to church? And people would say things like, ah, oh, maybe, maybe if you taught me how to handle my finances. Or people would say, I'm having trouble with my kids. If you could teach me to be a better parent, maybe then I would come to church. Or if you could teach me how to have more self-worth, I'm struggling with my self-worth, then I would come to church. And so preachers began to do that. They began to build these sermon series based on what they thought the unchurched wanted to hear to get them to church. Sounds okay on the surface, except for the fact that the preacher's primary job is to hear from God and to speak what God wants to say to the church and to society. So we've actually become to be driven by what does culture want to hear not what does God have to say. 
and you can put on your doctrinal statement, I believe God's word to be an errant, infallible, inspired, but that requires, that belief requires praxis. And so, again, I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I'm just communicating to you my own views, how we are a church is gonna, are going to continue to operate. We want to study the word from an expository fashion. That means, again, the text drives what we're talking about, not my own opinions or ideas. I could draw up a sermon on five ways for you to be healthy, healthy and happier and give you some scriptures to try to support my ideas. I could do that, but for us, we're going to try to study what God said, believing that what God said is sufficient for us, believing that God's word is it's bread for our souls, believing that God's word is authoritative, meaning you have a responsibility and I have a responsibility to obey it, so we dang sure better be sure of what it says. I was good preaching. I don't care what you have to say. Preaching should be from God, found in revealed revelation, not founded on man's ideas. So the first thing God says to Joshua, you're called to lead, you're called to be courageous. Make sure my word's on your lips. Make sure my word's on your lips. If we're going to lead in our generation, in our hour, as there is a plethora of darkness rising up to confront us, the only way to lead is with the word of God on your lips. Next, God says to Joshua, meditate upon it. Put the word on your lips and meditate upon it. Now, that's actually saying a lot more than you think. The biblical concept of meditation is not the Eastern concept of meditation where you try to empty your brain and sit in silence. The biblical concept of meditation is when you apply your brain to consider what God has said, to reason through the Scriptures. You're faced to make a decision. Pick the decision whether or not you'll go work for this new employer. And you go to the Scriptures and you reason from the Scriptures. Will this honor God? Is this workplace, uh, is this environment, do I believe what they're doing is integratable? Do I sense God's Spirit leading me to this? You can find that in the Scripture. We're called to meditate on the things that God has said, to chew on it. You know, that's, that's what it means to chew, repetitively chew on it, to reason with it, and to live from that meditation. Again, so it's not that just that the Scripture is this kind of code that we go to every now and again to look to, like it, like it tells us everything we should do from point A to point B. You should brush your teeth in the morning. You should comb your hair. You should, it's, it's not that kind of instruction book. It is the kind of book that we're called to chew on, to think on, to meditate on. And as we meditate on it, we are learning of God's own character, of God's will, his purposes, his desires. David said, I meditate on your word as I lay on my bed at night. The psalmist said, I love your law. On your law, I meditate. Hide it in your heart. When you have time to think, think on it. I want to encourage you, and this is something I've done for years, and I think it's really helpful. Not like I'm the person that invented this. I think every, forever has happened. I want to encourage you to have, have some devotional time in the morning. And some will say, if you're, if you're best, if you're sharpest in the afternoon, have some time in the afternoon. That's fine too. But put, put the Word of God on your heart in the morning, and then throughout the day, when you have a moment, stop and chew on it. Remind yourself of the narrative. Let it be motivation to your soul. When, you, when you're driving in the car... Maybe for a moment, turn that radio off and just think about what God said to you this morning in your devotional time. Let his word be life to you. Let his word be joy to you. It'll instill courage, godly desires. Consider Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his ways pure? By guarding it according to your word. 
With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Meditation is part of the process of storing it up. That you may not wonder that when temptation comes, you have a response from God's revelation. One, Joshua, put the word on your lips. Lead with the word, the revelation, the book of the law on your mouth. Two, Joshua, when you lay your head down at night, chew on, meditate on, think on all that I've said. Let the word be bread to your soul. Three, Joshua, be careful to do all that I've commanded you. Speak it, chew on it, and do it. Obedience. Think again to Luther saying, where does God dwell? Amongst the people who obey the word. Obedience to God's word is vital to the health of a church. It is not religious to preach biblical holiness. We've got to push back against the narrative that anytime we start talking about biblical standards of living, that we're somehow acting out religion. No, we're trying to be obedient to God's word. Jesus says that obedience is, is fueled by love for God. If you love me, then you will obey me. Grammatically, that statement is not a, um, it's not a manipulative, you know, you say to your spouse, if you love me, then you'll get up and cook dinner. Okay, it's not that kind of manipulative thing. I know none of you have ever done that before. Um, I usually say, if you love me, you'll get me a Diet Coke, please. Um, it's not that. The, not Grammatically, that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus said was, if you love me, naturally, you will obey me. It is, an, it is a natural overflow out of love for God is obedience. And so we need to think about obedience, preach obedience, talk about biblical holiness, not because we're trying to put on a show for our neighbor, that would be hypocritical, not because we're trying to earn our salvation, that would be works-based religion, but because we really love Jesus. I believe in doing God's word. I believe God blesses obedience. I believe God's favor and anointing on our lives is more valuable than any silver or gold. I believe love for God and worship are intricately related to obedience. I love Jesus way too much to just ignore what he said. I love his word. I believe holiness is thankfulness for the cross of Christ and the blood that was poured out there. I believe that we need to hear the word to Joshua that the Bible, God's revelation, must be on our lips, it must be meditated upon, and it must be obeyed. And that there, if we as a people hear that word, we choose to diligently teach the word, study the word, we make it our life's aim to feast on it, to chew on it, to think on it. If we make it our church's aim to be a biblical people, I believe the presence of God will only increase in this house. I believe God loves a sincere people who sincerely love him and he dwells in their midst. And I would rather be in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-obeying church than in the church of the swankiest, most charismatic, humorous preacher there ever was on the earth. I want to be amongst the people who love the word, obey the word, so what does God say to Joshua as Joshua's getting ready to transition into this great responsibility of leadership? One, you're going to have to be strong and courageous. You cannot be intimidated. 
You can't compromise. You can't meet in the middle with culture. You're going to have to believe what I said. When I said I'm with you, you better believe that I'm with you. Two, put my word on your lips. Proclaim it. Teach it. Read it. Put it in your heart. Chew on it. Think on it. Three, make sure that my word is written on the soles of your shoes, if you will. Obey it. Do it. Let the steps of your life be directed by my word. Is that applicable to us today? Yes, my friends. That is applicable. Applicable to us today. Go ahead and stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We must conquer the fear that rises within our souls. We must stand up to the pressure to cave. We must instill courage in our children and grandchildren. I want to ask you to doggedly be courageous dogmatically committed to God's word, dogmatically obedient to all that he said. And our values concerning the scripture cannot just be a point on our doctrinal statement. When we say we believe God's word is inspired and infallible and inerrant, we are saying we actually believe that with that blessing comes the responsibility of stewarding a life according to that belief. In other words, we're going to put the word on our lips, teach it, proclaim it, do our best to extract from the text what the text intended to say. Not to, not to deposit into the scripture our own modern cultural ideas to try to encourage one another's emotional state of being. To make you feel like you have a more self-worth. It, it's not about that. It's, God, what are you saying? Two, it will be in our hearts. We're going to continue to meditate on it, chew on it. In our worship, the word should come forward. And three, we're going to be a people of obedience. Because God says to Joshua, when you obey, I will be with you. Your ways will be prosperous and blessed. Again, that's not prosperity gospel. That's not God saying, if you obey choose the BMW and I'll get it for you. Not what he said. He said, if you obey, I will be with you through every storm, through every trial. Again, that's also not a works-based salvation that says you must obey in order to have eternal life. That's not what's said here either. What's said here is that there's a blessing, there's an anointing, there's a favor upon a people who honor this word and do it. I'm asking you to get dogged with your convictions concerning the word of God. If your convictions are not dogged concerning the scripture, I promise you, I promise you, they will be challenged in the days to come. Our beliefs about the Bible will be challenged. Altar team, if you guys want to get in place.
one, if you're here and you would say, I'm not a believer, I don't know what it means to be a Christian. Or you would say, Caleb, you've talked about obeying the Bible. I know that I've not obeyed the Bible. We would say to you first that none of us stand before God because we performed enough. That what the scripture teaches is that all of us have sinned, meaning we've all, every person in this room, have made grievous mistakes. Every person in this room deserves judgment. There's not a person in this room that has earned heaven. If anyone in this room makes it to heaven, which we will, it will be because Christ earned it for us. And when he shed his blood on the cross, he shed it for the forgiveness of your sins so that you would be washed. And so if you're here this morning and you say, I don't know God and I know I've messed up, we would say, yeah, we get it. We too have messed up. But you can have eternal life today in spite of the mess that you've made of your life because Christ loves you, he died for you, and he rose again. It's not about what you did yesterday. All that matters is whether or not you will bow your knee to Christ Jesus today. And I would say to you, today is the day of salvation. I would say to you, stop with your rebellion. Stop running from God. Don't walk out of this room without getting right with Christ. He's present here today, ready for reconciliation and redemption. You can know that heaven's your home, not because of the way that you lived, but because of Christ Jesus' own death on Calvary and resurrection. Next, there were a few prophetic words that came forward this morning as we prayed. One was that we as a church need to learn to savor the awesomeness of God. That some of us have felt discouraged and despair. And today's the day to just stand before the glory of God and to let that glory minister to your soul. A word that tied with that is that many are weary. They need to come just get at the feet of Jesus. The Martha Mary thing, that today's the day to stop all the work and striving and stressing and just to sit at the feet of Jesus and just to let him minister to you, just to let him bless you. As always, if you're struggling with any sickness, any illness, there was a word this morning that someone's struggling with a toe issue. If that's you, I want to ask you to come and receive prayer. So the altars are officially open. If you need to give your life to Jesus, go ahead and come. Don't hesitate. Don't look around. Just go ahead and come. If you need peace and you need to just meet with the glory of God, I want to ask you to come now. If you're struggling with any physical ailment, come now. We're going to pray and believe the Spirit's here to set you free. Come on, His presence is here this morning. worship your spirit's like a wall to my soul your word is a lamp to my feet jesus i love you i love you because your name is like honey come on bless him I love you. 
So if you would, um, just open your hands. We'll get ready to close. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that you would continue to make us a people of courage. In Jesus' name, I pray that you'd give us the boldness and the doggedness to press forward in the days to come. In Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you for the word of God that is honey to our lips. We pray you'd give us the boldness to obey it, to teach it, to proclaim it, to honor it as revelation. For years to come, Lord, make our feet not waver, Lord, to the right or to the left. For years to come, find us on the narrow path, clinging to your truth. Hallelujah. May my children and grandchildren love your word. May our generations trust the promises of God. And may the cross of Christ be preached to the corners of this nation, Lord. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, you are officially dismissed. But the altar team is going to stay up. The worship is going to stay. If you need ministry, you don't have to rush out of here. We are here to pray for you.